If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the Psalms, to Psalm 91. Uh, There are black Bibles nearby. If you don't have one, it's on page 497. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, too, you're welcome to keep that. We have extras. We have more of those. Um, So you can keep one if you don't have another one. Uh, But Psalm 91, we're in the series Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And what the Psalms have been challenging us to do is to have an honest relationship with God. Uh, And so that means worship in which we bring the full range of emotion before God as we cry to Him, as we praise Him, as we lament, uh, as we celebrate. Uh, This also affects our prayer life, our private devotion where we're, we're real with God. We cry out to Him. We bring our real emotions into collision with who he is and what he has to say and the truth of his word. It affects our, our Christian friendships, counseling relationships, small group relationships. And so again and again, we've been challenged uh, to be authentic and to speak God's word back to him even as we cry out to him. Uh, this week, the name of the sermon is Unbreakable. Unbreakable. Psalm 91 is sometimes referred to as the warrior's psalm, and it gives great promises of being undefeatable, of being unbreakable, of being invincible. Um, How many of you have ever memorized a portion of Psalm 91 or heard it used in in this sense in relation to the military, some of you? Okay, some of of you are aware of this. I uh, just had lunch with a dear friend this week who talked about how just how precious it was to their family, um, how impactful this psalm was, one that they memorized when, when Desert Storm, Desert Shield happened. They had, you know, we hadn't uh, fought a conflict like that in a long time, and there was all kinds of uncertainty or, about what, what would happen, uh, and this family clung to this, this psalm. Uh, and then later, after 9-11, uh, they were actually moving to a Muslim country, and so they, they taught this psalm to their kids, and they recited this and remembered this, and this gave them great comfort that God would be their protection. There's a lot of great scriptures we can go to in those kind of times of uncertainty, and we don't know what's going to happen, where we can remember that God is our protection. He is our shelter. He's our refuge. And that's the kind of thing that Psalm 91 promises. Um, This is also Palm Sunday. I think it's interesting uh, that we're looking at this on Palm Sunday because I mentioned earlier Palm Sunday is the the day when we remember the triumphal entry the week before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came into Jerusalem. Uh, This story is, is painted in all the Gospels of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and many praised him as that unbreakable Messiah, as the one that came to conquer, as the one that would finally give them victory as a people. But the religious leaders of the day rejected him. Uh, and so it's interesting to me, again, that God just gave this to us for Palm Sunday as we're entering into this time of reflection on who Jesus was, what his true character was. I think that this is going to push us towards seeing the, the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus as the truly unbreakable one. It's a truly invincible one. But I think the psalm is also going to comfort us. It's, it's a psalm that we can run to when we are fearful, when we are unsure, when we're afraid. So we'll read the beginning of it together, and then we'll read the rest of the verses as we move through the night. So if you'll follow along with me. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, And from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. 
A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Let me pray and uh, ask God to teach us. God, we pray that you would teach us tonight. We pray that you would help us to hear and receive your word, that you would speak it into our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you would give us open minds. We pray pray that you would give us uh, open hearts to be receptive to you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a movie that I, I watched years ago, maybe 10 years ago, starts off with the main character being introduced to you. You're meeting this main character riding on a train. Uh, and really not far into the movie at all, this train crashes. There's this horrible wreck. Um, the train cars are going off the rails, all kinds of mayhem and violence. It's a horrible, horrible crash. And then you see the next scene of them in the hospital, and all kinds of people died and were horribly injured. And there's a doctor that's perplexed because he's, he's checking out this main character who, who doesn't seem to even have a scratch after this horrible accident. It's this incredible accident. Everybody else is hurt. Everybody else is maimed. Everybody else was beat up or killed. But he's fine. And this mystery begins to be unraveled for you in this movie that, that this guy is actually unbreakable. The movie's called Unbreakable. It's one of these weird fantasy movies by M. Night Shyamalan. And imagine... That you're this guy that discovers, I, I'm invincible. I'm unbreakable. What would, that, what would that do for you? What would that be like? All the guys in the audience are like, yeah, that'd be cool, right? Um, wouldn't it be amazing to be absolutely secure? Wouldn't that be incredible to be absolutely secure? That's the kind of over-the-top crazy promises that we see in Psalm 91. This promise of being invincible. This promise of being unbreakable. So my question for you is, if, if that was possible in our life, what, what would we do with that? That's the question posed in the movie, and that, that's the question I would pose for us as well. If, if this is true or if this is possible, how, how would we then live if we knew that we were more than conquerors, that we were unbreakable, that we could be invincible? The, the text, uh, text kind of unfolds it in, in order, and it breaks it into sections by pronouns, is what a lot of commentators see, so that's how I'm going to break it up, uh, that at the beginning, there's some I statements, kind of a statement of faith by the author, just the first couple of verses, and then there's a long section where there's a lot of you statements, right, where he's challenging us, saying, you, 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 and then at the end, we have I statements again, but it's God speaking this time, so it's basically three voices speaking, right, there's the author of the psalm, a human author, and then us, right, the listeners, and then God saying something to us in the end. So we're going to break it up into those sections as we look at it. And the first section, what we see in just the first couple of verses is uh, the author talking about my unbreakable refuge. He, he's starting us with God saying, look to God, my unbreakable refuge. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is the one that we can trust. And so he starts off making a statement of faith. That's where he, he grounds us. It's like a foundation a diving board, a place for us to start, okay? So first two verses, he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's got uh, multiple layers. He's got multiple names for God here, and he's got multiple um, metaphors for God, right? Shelter, uh, trust, fortress, refuge, shadow, And so he's giving us these multiple pictures to say, God, he's the only one that's really almighty. He's the only one that's really unbreakable. He's the only one that's really invincible. And so that's where we've got to start. 
We live in a world of brokenness. We have been broken. We continue to be broken. And so in our quest for security, our quest for something to save us, to help us, sometimes we look in the wrong place. And the author's redirecting our attention and saying, saying, no, look here. Look at God. He's the place to look. He's the one we should look to. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Those of you that have been through a summer here, you understand the tremendous (laughs) blessing that shadow can be, right? Um, Shade. I'll say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Those of you that are soldiers, that are warriors, you can relate to a a fortress, to a, a refuge. You may have body armor, right? We have different things that we use to give us safety, to protect us. And here he's saying God is the real refuge. God is the real fortress. We've seen that imagery come up again and again in the Psalms. He's the ultimate fortress. He's the unbreakable fortress. He's the unstoppable fortress. He's the real power in the universe. So he's the one we should start with. I have this picture of a, of a uh, storm shelter. You know, there was a lot of talk after the last tornadoes hit Oklahoma about how everyone should have a storm shelter in these places where the tornadoes come through all the time. Do you all remember that being in the news, that discussion? Um, And so a lot of homes do have uh, storm shelters up there. We get tornadoes here too, but not quite as often as up there. We're kind of like at the the tail end of Tornado Alley down here, I guess, but they're right in the middle of it. So I have a picture here of some people peeking their head out of a storm shelter. And so I'll just describe what's in the picture because I know folks in the back can't always see it. We've got People poking their head out of a storm shelter, and there's just destruction all around them. And so they've found shelter. They've found safety, found refuge in this shelter, but now they're coming out, and everything's broken. Everything's in pieces. Everything is destroyed. And that's an image of of what we see here in the text. He's saying in a world full of brokenness, in in a world of cancer and divorce and betrayal um, and murder and theft and whatever else, you know, you can add to the list, right? We, we all have brokenness we've experienced even this week. God's our only shelter. God's the only one we can really run to and rely on. So the author is starting us there. He's saying, this is the foundation. My unbreakable refuge is God. I'm going to start with God. If you want to be unbreakable, if you want to be invincible, if you want to be a conqueror, God's, God's the ultimate hero. He's the ultimate champion. We see that when we look at Old Testament stories. You know, we see these heroes of the Bible and recognize, oh, they're not really the hero. They're pointing us to the real hero, which is Jesus himself, which is the God of the Bible. He's the real champion. He's the real hero, not, not me, not you, not anybody else, but God is the real champion. So I just have a couple of applications, just where he's starting us here, and then we'll look at the rest of the text. The first one is, I know some of you, um, God's not going to keep you here forever. Uh, just the nature of our community, God's going to take you to another church, a lot of you. That's going to happen. A lot, of you, a lot of people move in and out of this community. When you're looking for another church, of, of course look for a church that, that focuses on Jesus. And of course look at a church where you're going to be taught the Bible. But I'd also say, take these first two verses in mind. Look at a church that starts with God as the foundation. With God as the fortress, as the refuge that you can count on. Start with Him. Look for, look for teaching that is God-centered, God-founded, that makes God the champion, that makes him the security, not a place that's always focusing on us, not always focusing on what we do, but one that's focusing on what he's done and how reliable he is. That's an important, like, north star. That's an important compass 
uh, for a community of faith, to keep looking back to him. That's, that's where the psalmist wants us to start, recognizing that. I'd also say there's, there's some of you here um, that maybe aren't committed to the teachings of Scripture. Maybe you're, you have doubts, you have questions. And I, I hope, first of all, you feel welcome here, welcome to ask those questions. But I would challenge you to, to ask those questions of God. But one of the things we've been taught again and again in the Psalms, we've been seeing this pattern of honesty, right? Like of people saying, psalmists saying, God, I can't figure out what you're doing and talking to God about that. So I would challenge you, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you're struggling with who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, take those questions to him. Ask him. Start with him. Make him your beginning point. Just as the psalmist starts us here, just as we've seen throughout the psalm, start with him. And then I think there's another category of people that have a bitterness towards God. You know, you might think of a doubter as maybe someone that's agnostic or, you know, not sure about their faith, a skeptic maybe. Uh, An atheist, I believe, has a stronger posture of of hating God. Generally, an atheist is someone, we've joked about this in the past, a teacher said one time, an atheist has two beliefs. One, I don't, one, there is no God, and two, I hate him, right? I mean, there's generally generally a, a posture of anger towards God, for an atheist. So I challenge you there, if you're in that posture, again, don't just, don't take it over here, but, but wake up and, and realize that posture and talk to him about it. Just talk to him. If you're that angry at him, just tell him, right? Say, God, I, I hate you. I'm not sure even why I hate you and, and sort that out with him. Bring those questions, bring those doubts to him. We've seen this pattern in the Psalms where we've been taught to, to bring all of that stuff into collision with God and who he is. We have to understand that every doubt, every question, everything we know, it all comes out of our relationship with God. He's there no matter what, right? So don't fall under the impression that if you pretend he's not there, he's not really there, right? You know how like a kid hides their eyes and and thinks you're not there anymore? Well, you're still there. God's still there. Even if we hide, God's still there. So so take your problems to him. Just just be honest and bring your stuff to him. Uh, John Frame talks about this in a book called The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. He talks about how um, in the world of what philosophers call epistemology, um, it's this, basically epistemology is just how we know stuff. So it's like the philosophy of how you know things. And in that realm, he says it's all in relationship with God. He says it this way. Here's a quote. Views about God, Christian and non-Christian alike, always arise from one's personal relation to God, from a person's ethical and religious orientation. So what, what he's asserting here, what he's saying here, is that you can't think or know anything apart from a posture, a relationship to God. He's there all the time. He's the constant. We're the one that changes. So, so when we have these doubts, when we have these questions, when we have these problems, bring them to God. Start with him as the starting point. Because he is a refuge for those that will seek shelter. The next thing that he points to in this change of... Um, pronouns here as he starts talking about these you statements. So we've got a long section in the middle here, you statements. You, 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 you. And what the author here is saying is that uh, your unbreakable hope, my unbreakable hope, he's talking to you, the audience, is, is the Lord. So look at, starting in verse 3, let's look at this, the you statements here. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Um, anybody here, last name Fowler? We have a Fowler here? Uh, if you're a Fowler, I have a friend named Fowler, that means somewhere, you know, somewhere back there you had an ancestor that 
was a bird catcher, right? That's what fowler means, right? So uh, he's saying that you're like a bird that's been caught sometimes in life, right? Whether you fell into uh, disobedience of God and you got into bad behavior, you've got into addictive behavior, or maybe you've uh, done something stupid, wh- whatever it may be, or maybe someone else has done something to you, sometimes in life you're like a bird caught in a cage. And he says God's the one that sets free those birds, birds like us. He sets us free. He'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Pestilence, right? Like the destruction of crops and disease that comes across a, uh, a, uh, a farm or a culture or a community. He'll save you from that as well, he says. Verse 4, he says, he'll cover you with his pinions and under his wings you'll find refuge. So he's using uh, mama bird imagery here. He'll be like protecting you. And then the other side of verse 4, he says, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So then he switches now to soldier imagery, which I think is really cool. We get that a lot. Zephaniah 3.17 is another verse where he does that kind of thing, and that's always been one of my favorite verses where it says, God is this mighty warrior who will save, and then he'll uh, rejoice over you with singing. You know, it's like he's rocking us like a baby. So we see that in Zephaniah 3.17, that kind of switch back and forth of he is mighty and powerful, this mighty warrior, and he's tender and gentle. That's what we have here in verse 4, too. Like a mama bird and like a sword, he's going to be there to take care of us. I have a picture here of the mama bird thing. I thought this was a great picture. This is goose with a little little baby chick kind of tucking its head out from underneath the mama's wing. And that's the picture he gives us here. God is that kind of refuge for us. God can be our unbreakable hope. And so in verse verse 5, he goes on. More promises. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. He's, he's really talking about the totality of all the different things that can attack us, that can break us, that can hurt us. He's saying all these things will find protection in God. He says, um, where are we, seven? A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Now he's talking warrior language again, right? There may be death and destruction all around, but you'll, you'll be protected. You'll be safe. He goes on in verse 8, You'll only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Recompense is like they're just due, right? The, you'll just see the wicked getting what they deserve, but you'll be secure. So God's going to be your hope in all these different kinds of situations. Disease, war, famine, wh- whatever it is, God's going to be your hope. He's going to be the one that's going to keep you from being broken in these kind of situations. Because, verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. And so we have all these incredible promises made. What I'd like you to see, uh, one of the commentators pointed out, I think this was Richard Belcher, he wrote a book on the Psalms, he was pointing out that all of these promises of um, surviving the brokenness of, of war or disease or plague or whatever all these things are, he says these same promises are echoes from the Mosaic Covenant, from the Old Testament, from what Moses wrote down in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Right? So Moses led the, the people of Israel out of slavery, and God made these covenants with his people. So we often call that the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the leader. And so the Ten Commandments were the core of that, but God gave all these other laws. And God said, if you keep my laws, if you do right, you'll be blessed. Things will go well with you. You'll have a good life. You'll lead a rich life. 
And we can, I mean, we can agree with that, right? Uh, you're in a religious place, so you should agree with it, right? But kind of all religions would agree with that. All religions would say, if you do good things, good things will happen, right? You think that's generally true of most religions? That's kind of one of those things that most religions share in common. Uh, if you do right, uh, if you uh, eat right, get plenty of sleep, brush your teeth, you're going to have a better life, right? You know, I mean, if you just kind of obey the laws of how the world works, things are going to go better for you. And so the problem, though, is we, we don't always do what's right, right? I mean, I don't. I'm willing to admit that. I don't always do what's right. So these promises that are made in the Mosaic Covenant, these are all echoed in, in if you want to look this up later, Leviticus chapter 26, the same kind of phrases are repeated. And in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, they echo that we don't have to be afraid um, it talks about chasing away thousands and ten thousands, about God's dwelling place being with us, about uh, wild animals being uh, overcome. It talks about pestilence being overcome, boils and diseases being overcome. It lists all these same kind of things in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. So we have these promises in the law that if we just keep the law, we'll be unbreakable. But the problem is we can't keep the law. So, so Hebrews 8 talks about this. Hebrews 8 contrasts what's called there the old covenant with Moses and the new covenant through Jesus, and it contrasts. And it says, there wasn't anything wrong with that old covenant. The the problem wasn't with the promises that God made of obey me and everything will go great, right? That's not a bad promise. That's a pretty good promise. The the problem is not with that promise. Who's the problem with? Anybody here read Hebrews chapter 8? The problem is with us. That's what Hebrews says. The problem is with the people, not the covenant. So we have this law covenant that says, do what's right and your life will be awesome. And we all don't do what's right. And our life is not awesome. We struggle. We're, we are broken. And so we, rest, we wrestle with understanding the text here where it sees, seems to have these great promises. God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. But we don't always live that out. And the, as we step back from it, the bigger biblical story is that everything that's broken in our life is a result of sin. Not always our personal responsibility. Sometimes it's a sin of other people. It's either our sin or somebody else's sin. The whole, the whole creation, Romans 8 says, is just groaning and, and broken and, and falling apart. So, so what are we going to do with this? Let, let's, let's keep going through it. I, wanna, I don't want to totally like solve it. You know the answer is Jesus. But I want to totally solve it yet. Let's kind of move through the text a little more. It, it goes on. In verse 11, and you're going to recognize this phrase, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does anyone recognize that? That comes up in the New Testament later on. Remember that? Uh, Satan actually speaks these words to Jesus. In the temptation of Jesus, Luke chapter 4 details this. Uh, Satan takes Jesus up on the top of the temple and he says, if you're this dude, if you're really the unbreakable one, if you're the one that fulfills this, then throw yourself down and his angels will snatch you up, just like it promises in Psalm 91. And do you all remember how Jesus answers him there? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's not how this was supposed to be fulfilled. So there are promises of safekeeping. There are promises of refuge. There are promises of angels uh, caring for him, lifting him up, but that's not, that's not how it was going to happen. So we kind of had to wait and see 
We had to watch. You have to read the whole gospel, right, to see God's plan, to see that unfold. People were always coming up to Jesus saying, hey, you're the Messiah. Be the Messiah the way we want you to be. But Jesus wasn't always the Messiah the way we wanted him to be the Messiah, but he's the Messiah, right? He's the unbreakable one. He is the champion. He is the conqueror, but he's not always, he doesn't always do it the way we want him to. Look at the next verse. It says then, in verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Um, adder is a, just another name for a snake, and so this is a repetition here, lion and snake, lion and snake. Um, we know already there's a theme here of treading on the serpent or stomping on the serpent, right? Where, where does that first show up? That first shows up in Genesis 3.15. So after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, a promise is made to the serpent, Satan, and to Eve, and we're told we're set up there in Genesis 3.15 that someday a son of Eve would come and step on the serpent's head, right? If you've seen the movie The Passion, that's my favorite scene in the movie right at the beginning. Jesus steps on the snake's head. It's a pretty good scene. It's a little you know, poetic addition there to the story that's not in the Gospels, but, but it's a good image, right? Because we're promised that in Genesis 3.15 that someday a son of Eve would come and defeat evil, defeat the serpent. The way it's worded in Genesis 3.15 is that the um, the heel of the sun will be crushed and the head of the serpent will be crushed. So which would you rather have, a crushed head or a crushed heel? What do you think sounds better? I'd rather have a crushed heel, right? And so that's what we see fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is crushed, but not in a permanent defeat, right? Jesus is crushed, but really the serpent is ultimately crushed. The serpent's head is crushed. He's defeated forever. Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, is now defeated sin and death once and for all through his death and resurrection. And so he's lifted up, not in the way we thought it would be, right? Satan said, throw yourself off the top of the temple and then God will have to lift you up. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to go down. But Jesus was lifted up. He did rise from the grave. And so we see Jesus fulfilling this, right? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. But before, before you jump off into, okay, this psalm then no longer has anything to do with me, it's Jesus. He fulfills it all. We still fulfill this. In Romans 16.20, it says this. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Have you all ever heard that verse before? I used to sing a camp song when I was a youth pastor about that. There was a lot, of, a lot of screaming and a lot of ruckus was raised with that song. But it's a promise made to regular people like you and me that, okay, yeah, Jesus is really the champion. He's the unbreakable one. He's the conqueror. He's the Messiah. He's the hero. He's the one that crushed the head of Satan. But Paul is saying that to all Christians in Romans 16. Paul is saying this, this is worked out by God's people as well. We, we live out what, what Jesus did. We in our actions, we in our faith, we in our struggles, right? Paul says in Colossians, he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in his own flesh. In Paul's getting beat up and getting stoned, and getting thrown out of town, Paul gets to participate in Jesus' suffering. The disciples said similar things in the book of Acts. When, when they would get beat up, they're like, oh, this is awesome. We get, to, we get to share in Jesus' suffering. Do we have that attitude toward suffering? I don't know about you, but I usually don't. I'm just like, God, take me from the suffering as quickly as possible, right? Get me out of here. I can't handle it. But I think what the text is promising us is we do have an unbreakable hope, right? We can be unbreakable, but we might follow in Jesus' footsteps. 
we might do it as Jesus did it, right? So if, if uh, Satan put us up on the top of the building and said, throw yourself down, he said you're unbreakable, he'll save you. We, we might have fallen for that temptation. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to work. But Jesus was still broken for us. Jesus was still broken for us. But he's, he's conquered that brokenness through the resurrection. And we get to follow in that same pattern. Let's continue to look at the text and see how this is worked out. The, the last section, starting in verse 14, zeroes in on God's unbreakable declaration. God's unbreakable declaration. And so this is where the pronouns shift for the final time, right? Like, so the voice at the beginning was the writer saying, I trust in God. You should trust in God too. Then the middle section is you, 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 talking to the audience. And then now this last section is, is I, but it's God speaking this time. So it's a change of voice again, like at a play. So now look at verse 14. God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. So this is God's declaration. Because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. It's a promise he's made to us. If we hold fast to him, he'll deliver us. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the promise. This is the declaration that God makes to us. This is now the voice of God speaking here. This first phrase is a great phrase. He holds fast to me in love. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. And this uh, this phrase is literally like tying ropes to someone, right? So you can understand how that would be a metaphor for us loving someone, and it's used in the Old Testament also for a man loving a woman or parent loving a child. It's like, I've bound myself to you. This idea of I've tied myself up with you. I'm committed to you. I'm connected with you. And that's what it's talking about here when it says holds fast. What's interesting is that Derek Kidner points out that this phrase is never in any other place in the Bible used of someone tying themselves to God. It's always just used in human love or God tying himself to us. That's, that's more common. He says God even goes out of his way in Deuteronomy, where's my reference here? Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and Deuteronomy 10.15. Kidner says God goes out of his way to say, I've tied myself to you. And so the only reason you love me is because I've bound myself to you. So again, we're remi- reminded of the foundation of God, his love comes first. He's bound himself to us. And so we respond in love because he's bound himself to us first. That's message. Even, even in the Old Testament, even in Deuteronomy, we see that. And then look at the word rescue in verse 15. It says in verse 15, when he calls to me, I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will rescue him. What does rescue imply? That we, what? Sin? We need saving, we need, we, it implies saving, it, it implies we need saving, it implies trouble, it implies that we're in something that we need to be pulled out of. Uh, the word is a very literal word of like grabbing something and pulling it out. It's Hebrew word chalatz, it's like grab this, pull it out of the hole, right? You, dr- you drop a coin down a hole, you're going to pull it back out. So th- this is saying we're in something that we need to be pulled out of. I, I grabbed an image here of a helicopter rescue to you know give you that image if you're in a storm or you're... If, you're in a hole or if you're in the ocean, you need someone to pull you out. And that's the image that God gives here of rescue. So the picture I want you to paint, uh, or the picture I want to paint for you here that I think the text is showing us is that uh, in our desire to be unbreakable, to survive the brokenness of this world, God's saying, well, you're in it and I'm going to pull you out of it. So it doesn't mean we're never going to experience any pain or brokenness. 
it means we're in it. We're already in something deep. We need him to pull us out. You see that? Just the logic. I'm, I'm just trying to show here that he's saying, you're in something, and I'm going to go in after you. The other way he says this in the, in the parallel phrase, just right before that, in verse, uh, where is it here? In verse 15, right before I'll rescue him, I'll pull you out, he says, I'll be with him in trouble. So we're in trouble, and he promises, I'll be with you. I'll be with him. He'll be with us in trouble. And that's the promise that he makes. Not, you'll never see trouble, which that's usually what we wish, right? We usually wish, God, just allow me to never see any trouble at all. That's not the promise that he makes. The promise that he makes is, I will be with you in trouble. I'll go in there with you. I'll, I'll pull you back out. So I think the picture that we get is that we're, we're in something, and we need God to pull us out. And so when we look at the promises of conquering, the promises of being invincible, the promises of being unbreakable here in Psalm 91, they don't apply in this kind of simplistic, plastic way where we will never suffer at all. But we live in a world of suffering, of sin and death, and God promises to come in after us and to be with us. Our hope is union with Him, is His presence in our life. And so I believe also the way that we'll be unbreakable, the way that we'll tread uh, the serpent underneath our own feet is as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. That, that his plan for us is to follow and to live the way he lived. And so the way that we'll be unbreakable is the same way Jesus was unbreakable, that we'll go through pain and brokenness and we'll find resurrection on the other side. So the way that we'll love people is the same way that Jesus loved us. We'll love people through, through suffering, through difficulty. And that's, hard, that's a hard message, right? Like I know my heart resists that just like yours does. But I know that our, our brothers and sisters that, that live in suffering every day probably can hear this more easily than we can. We live in great comfort. Some of the greatest comfort that history's ever seen. Ever. Right? Like we're the most spoiled people that have ever lived. So it's hard for us to hear, but, but I, I believe it's God's plan that we would follow in, in big brother Jesus' footsteps. And we can pray, we can still be honest, just like we've seen in the Psalms, we can still say, just like Jesus did in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer like, it's okay to say that. God, I don't want to do this. God, pull me out of this. God, help me. But I also want you to hear that God may be taking us through something for the purpose of others, for the, for the saving of others, for the help of others, to, to love others. God may have bigger purposes in mind than our own comfort. And so we can find these unbreakable promises and they're then translated into what Paul says in Romans 8. We look at Psalm 91, we might, we might take them in a kind of a plastic, simple sense where we think, I'll never have to suffer. But Paul takes these same kind of promises of conquering and of being invincible and being unbreakable and he takes them and he transforms them at the end of Romans 8. And he talks about actually going through great brokenness but still being unbreakable in spite of that. Because Jesus was broken for us, Paul goes into great detail about because how Jesus was broken for us and we have great confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God that Jesus offers to us. So even though we go through great brokenness, we can still be unbreakable in him. He says in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, oh no, I lost my place, shall tribulation, there it is, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Remember, he's not saying 
God's going to keep us from ever facing those things. He's saying, can those things that we may really face separate us from the love of Christ? No, no. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a complaint from God's people from the psalm that he's quoting here. In the psalm, they're complaining, God, we're, we're, just, we're getting beat up here, God. What's happening? Paul's saying, yeah, that's, we're living that out. We are going through great pain, great brokenness. Paul says, can, it, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And then he answers it in verse 37. The answer is no. No. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, the word conquer, uh, victory in Greek is Nike, right? You know, that's why Nike named their company that. And so this word is a cool word in Greek. Uh, it's hyper Nike, okay? That's the word here. Hyper Nike, it's, it's like hyper conquers, more than conquers. That's who we are. We're unbreakable. We're invincible. What does that look like? For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll be broken in ways that we don't want to be broken. But he promises us because Jesus was broken for us that ultimately we're unbreakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that he has for us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll respond with this final song again. God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus was broken for us. We pray that you would shape us by that. God, give us unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other places that have undergone great suffering, that have shared in your suffering, that follow in the footsteps of our big brother Jesus. Help us to follow in those footsteps and help us to see that that it's love. The same love that drove you to the cross enables us to be broken for the sake of others. Help us to love others well and reflect your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.